Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The volume. All I want for the holidays this year is some NBA action. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks. An instant dub just for you guys. The MVP odds are heating up. Just so you guys know, on DraftKings today, December 18th, Nicole Jokic plus 210, Luka Doncic plus 400, Joel Embiid plus 425, Shea Gilgis Alexander plus 900, Giannis plus 900, Jason Tatum plus 1800. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Thursday, everybody. Hope all of you guys are having an incredible week. Quick show today. We're just going to hit Wolves Sixers from last night and the heater that Joel Embiid has been on, as well as some stuff about Tyrese Maxey and the success that he's been having. Then we're going to talk about the New York Knicks, who are playing some really good basketball as of late and have their two stars playing at a really high level, but some decisions to make with what's around the corner and with the injury to Mitchell Robinson. And then at the end of the show, we're going to 
going to talk about the Los Angeles Lakers, who have been in a free fall since winning the in-season tournament. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. It would mean a lot to me if you guys would take a second to scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT so you guys don't miss any show announcements or the film threads that I do from time to time in the mornings. And then last but not least, keep dropping mailbag questions in the YouTube comments. We're going to be doing an extensive mailbag in tomorrow's show like we usually do on Friday. All right, let's talk some basketball. So Sixers get a big win, uh, come from behind in the fourth quarter to beat the Wolves last night comfortably. Joel Embiid has been on an absolute tear after scoring 50 last night in his last eight games. He's gone for 40 plus five times, 50 twice, averaging 41 in 13, 62% from the field, 38% from three, and 93% at the line. Now, uh, like so many people who watched that game yesterday, a lot of trips to the foul line, a lot of mid-range jump shots. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think it's okay to have two completely separate takes on Joel Embiid. And what I mean by that is, he's incredible. Him and Drew Hanlon have worked really hard to build out a super versatile skill set for Joel Embiid. And he's become a very well-rounded scorer. Obviously, the mid-range jump shot and that being deadly is the foundational piece, right? He's made 63 mid-range jumpers already this season. He's shooting 47.4% on them. Last night, he was 11 for 14 on mid-range jump shots against the Timberwolves. It's a good mix of both. It's isolation, hesitation, pull-up jump shots. It's, uh, you know, face-up, jab-step jump shots. And then it's jump shots that he takes off the catch and pick and roll when he kind of rolls to that, you know, 17, 15-foot mark right around the foul line, right? He's also gotten really good at feeling body contact. It's an important concept we talk about, like feeling on your shoulder blades, where the defender is so that you can spin off when you have your back to the basket. He had two dunks like that last night, spinning off of Nas Reed, off of the right block, and then kind of off the left elbow when he was getting guarded by Kyle Anderson and saw a double team coming from the right side, very smartly spun to the left, got into the lane, and threw down the dunk. He's also deadly in catch-and-shoot situations this year, specifically from three. Joel Embiid is shooting 49% on catch-and-shoot threes this year. Think about how insane that is. He's also passing the ball better than ever. He's averaging six assists per game. To give you an idea, he, in 394 games for the Sixers before this season, did uh, or hit a seven-assist mark 27 times in 394 games. He's already done it 10 times this season. So he's clearly gone up a level as a passer. He's just become a remarkably difficult player to guard and very well might be the best regular season player in the NBA right now. I mean, all of that. That is the first take. The second take is that watching him drives me absolutely crazy. The foul grifting is reprehensible at this point. And for the record, before I go any further here, This is not Joel Embiid's fault. Joel Embiid is a competitor who wants to win basketball games. And so he was doing whatever is necessary to win basketball games. That is what you should do. Famously, if you guys remember, Greg Popovich used to say of the Spurs teams in the early 2000s, 2010s, I should say, used to say, you think I want to be taking all these threes? No, that's not what he wants to do. 
It's just what you have to do, in his opinion at the time, for his personnel, in order to give yourself the best chance to win, as a simple factor of math. The point being, competitors do what they have to do to win. So I'm not upset with Joel Embiid about this. Everything I'm about to say is 1,000% directed towards the NBA, them giving too much wherewithal of freedom to the officials to determine the way basketball games flow, and the, the officials in particular not knowing how to properly manage a basketball game. You know, it's funny because like the uh, uh, watching this particular film, obviously with Synergy, the, the film software that I use, they uh, just pick a random broadcast and they use that to filter the footage. And this one happened to be the Minnesota broadcast. So I'm watching the Minnesota broadcast. And from the early part of the game, you know, jo- Joel Embiid's doing that thing he always does where he, like, gets down into the defender and then, like, ducks his body, sticks his arms out, and just rises up into a pull-up jump shot and tries to take a shot. A complete non-basketball play, for the record. Never, ever, ever will you see in any pickup run anywhere around the country, won't even see it really at, at, at the high school or college level because players aren't doing it, refs aren't calling it, but you'll never see that shot. Why? Because what is the purpose of the pull-up jump shot in basketball? The purpose of the pull-up jump shot in basketball is a coverage beater. Okay, I'm isolating the guy and he's giving me too much space. I'm going to hit a little step back to get a little bit more space and I'm going to rise up and take this jump shot. Or in the post, I'm going to bump him with that left shoulder, knock him off and turn over my right shoulder and take a shot because I've created separation between me and the defender. That's the Kawhi Leonard move, right? I'm coming off of this ball screen and pick and roll. I've got the defender pinned on the pick. Drop coverage pig, big is too, uh, too far back. I'm going to rise up and take this pull-up jump shot. That is what basketball says a pull-up jump shot should be. So why in the world is Joel Embiid going into defenders and deliberately extending the basketball, making it available for contact, and then taking shots? When that's objectively a bad basketball play. It's a lower percentage shot for him. If that call never got called, Joel Embiid would have to create separation before shots. Which, by the way, he's great at. He's great at that too. But we're sending him to the foul line more than a dozen times per game on shit like that that's not a basketball play. That's objectively a bad basketball play that Joel Embiid, the competitor, does to increase his offensive output. It was crazy listening to the broadcast and hearing the Timberwolves guys just like as Embiid's work, because, I mean, he was 11 for 14 on mid-range jump shots. So you can tell he was operating in that area a lot in this game. And that's 14 shot attempts that registered in the box score. Think about all the ones that didn't count because he didn't uh, make the shot, right? He's operating almost exclusively out of that area. And you can hear the Wolves announcers like, watch your hands, watch your hands. You can literally see the defenders and they're all like spazzing and they're, they're like terrified that they might, if they contest the shot, they might send Joel Embiid to the foul line. And, and, and it just, it's, a, it's bad on a bunch of different levels. One, it's objectively bad for the game of basketball. Why? Because it makes for a bad television product. I watch a lot of basketball. It's my job. And like, unquestionably, watching these Sixers games is a chore. 
that I find things that I love. I told you guys, like the some of Embiid's footwork in the post is always super impressive to me. The pivot moves we were talking about earlier, feeling contact. We're going to talk about Tyrese Maxey in a minute and some of the stuff that he's been doing lately that I really, really like. There's a lot of things that I like in there, but it's being bisected and cut apart by this relentless foul-grifting attack from Joel Embiid that makes it a bad television product. And then the second part of it is, Every year, we get to April, and suddenly the refs decide they don't want to reward that with free throws as much. They still occasionally do, but nowhere near as frequently. So the refs are telling you, we don't think this is basketball in April, May, June. But they allow it to be basketball in October, November, through the early portion of April, right? And so what ends up happening is, it becomes part of the problem for Joel Embiid. Is that a big part of that his offensive approach just becomes useless when he gets to that point, which has consistently been a part of what causes his, uh, his uh, effectiveness to decline. Even when Embiid gets to the foul line in the playoffs, it's when he's physically aggressive towards the basket. But guys are allowed to press up on him more in the mid-range. Suddenly his mid-range jump shot percentage tanks like it did the last few postseasons, and then his offensive effectiveness goes down. So it's just objectively bad for everybody. It's bad for the fans. It's bad for the league. It's bad for Joel in the long run. And, and objectively, it just it, it drives me crazy to watch. Drives me crazy. And again, not Embiid's fault. It's 100% the NBA's fault. It's something I've been bitching and moaning about all season because it's literally hurting the game that I love. And, and I like there was a play where Embiid caught at the top of the key and Nas Reed's guarding him and Embiid just rips through to the left and Nas slides his feet, takes the contact in the chest and as Embiid runs into his chest, just throws up the ball. Literally just throws up the ball. Gets rewarded with two free throws. Like I said, it's reprehensible. Straight, straight up bad for the league. And it's a bummer because Joel Embiid is playing some of the best basketball in the NBA right now. Like I said, he's arguably the best regular season player right now. He's my favorite for MVP right now, as I said in our MVP rankings on uh, uh, on Sunday last week. I, I, it is not an anti-Embiid take. It is 1,000% an anti-NBA take. Now, in addition to Joel Embiid busting everybody's ass, Tyrese Maxey is playing incredible. This is a tough matchup, too. He's being guarded by Jaden McDaniels for a good portion of this game. And, you know, when you when you have Jaden McDaniels on ball and Rudy Gobert waiting for you in ball screens, it, it can be tough. It can be a tough challenge, right? But what's crazy is, you know, Maxie still had some plays against that. There was a play I clipped uh, and put on my Twitter feed this morning where he, you know, sets up uh, uh, McDaniels for a screen, gets around to the left, and Gobert steps up, and he, like, straight up, like, Euro steps around him and finishes with a left-handed scoop shot off the glass after getting into his body with his right shoulder. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, this is a superstar play that you're seeing right here. But one of the things that I wanted to highlight today specifically, and it's a concept that I talk about a lot on this show, is the offensive variability or versatility or, you know, just, uh, uh, like, the different approaches that Tyrese Maxey has on offense, which makes him harder to guard. So, for instance... What's, you know, Tyrese Maxey's advantage against Jaden McDaniels? Speed, right? That's his biggest advantage. That said, Jaden McDaniels is fast too, and he has length. And so especially if you get into the habit of spamming actions against him, he's going to win that battle a lot of the time. In my opinion, Jaden McDaniels is one of the top two or three perimeter defenders in basketball, right? 
But I want to emphasize movement shooting here for a second. Now, I want to highlight a specific play because this is something that Tyrese has been doing all season and killing teams with. So he, uh, it's in the bench group, I think, and it was, I want to say, early fourth quarter. And Tyrese is pushing in transition. And he's trying to turn the corner on Tyrese uh, on uh, uh, Jaden McDaniels. He can't. Has to turn and throw the ball back out to Paul Reed. Soon as Paul Reed catches it, Tyrese just kind of gives a little shove to Jaden and then sprints out to the three-point line at the top of the key. Takes an escape step, like a long lunge step after he gets the dribble handoff from Paul Reed and rises up into a right-left footwork to uh, rise and fire off the catch jump shot. Nails it. And that's the thing. That is an entirely different type of offensive attack than an off-the-dribble ball screen or an off-the-dribble ISO or one of the many different actions that they might run where Tyrese is in a set position with Jaden on him and trying to get separation via screen or whatever from the perimeter. His ability to be like, well, you stopped me on this drive, but I'm a great movement shooter too. So you better get ready to lock and trail because I'm coming right back off that screen to my left. And he can do it to his right. You know, this is a consistent thing that they run. They'll have him come out of the corner and they'll run him off of like a double stagger dribble handoff and he'll just rise and fire from the left wing coming off of like a long arcing sprint. Like it's just a significant element of his offensive attack that prevents him from ever doing the same thing over and over again and maintaining that variety and making sure that your attack has a different like a different approach not just so that you can make yourself harder to guard for that individual defender but so that you have a different thing you can use on every uh, every single defender this is something I like I I've, I've told you guys this story a bunch of times on the show but like I was I was a late bloomer, right? So like when I was playing in college I was just an athlete, right? So I guarded the other team's best player, took some spot up shots. Like I had some scoring games when I was in JUCO, but JUCO's lower level competition doesn't mean anything. Um and, and like basically I was an athlete role player. And so as I got older, like I developed into a a more skilled perimeter oriented basketball player in my late 20s early 30s. That, it, was a, it was a transformation later, right? Because I was a late bloomer. I didn't play basketball when I was young. So what's interesting is I've encountered some of these things where it's like, okay, I became I, – my, my core skill was that I could shoot. And uh, especially as I got into my late 20s, I became a good shooter. In college, I was only an okay shooter. Became a good shooter when I was in my late 20s. And so I'm tall, you know, 6'6", six, six, got long arms, I, and I can move really well. So, like, guys, it got to the point where you just couldn't put a slower guy on me because – like if you did, I just I would just toast him off the dribble, or he'd give me too much space, and I would take those jump shots over the top. And I got really good at shooting pull up threes. So what everybody started doing is putting a smaller, quicker player on me and pressing up on me, and doing that so that they could test my handle and make it so that yeah, even if I try to make this move, this dude's quicker because he's a you know six two guard and I'm this bigger wing player, right? And so I had to add things like a back-to-the-basket post game. And then another big thing I added was movement shooting. I worked relentlessly on the same left-right, right-left footwork, depending on which angle I was coming off of a screen, just so that I could walk into every game and be like, who are you guarding me with? You're guarding me with a little guard? Okay, I'm going to work out of the high post, low post this game. You're guarding me with a big, uh, a slow guy? Okay, I'm going to work primarily off the dribble from the perimeter. You're guarding me with a wing that has similar athleticism to me. Okay, now I'm going to use, need to use a combination of all three to try to keep the guy off balance, right? It's it's a vital part in my opinion of reaching scoring resiliency. 
There's scoring and then there's scoring resiliency. Scoring is like on any given night, if the conditions are right, I can put up numbers. Scoring resiliency is maintaining those numbers in varying conditions. And that to me is a big step forward going from not just from good role player that can score to star, but also by going from star to superstar. And it's one of the things that makes Tyrese Maxey such an enticing young prospect is like he's a great movement shooter. He's a great spot up player. And he's becoming a great pick and roll scorer as well. And that that variety will give him all of the uh, uh, resiliency that I'm talking about to be uh, the best version of a score that he can be. Really good win for the Sixers. You know, it's funny. They, they went on that stretch where they lost to a bunch of bad teams and or beat a bunch of bad teams, excuse me, and then they lost to Chicago the other night. And this is another one of my like prevailing basketball theories, which is when you play a bunch of bad teams in a row, you form bad habits. And the Chicago Bulls have been playing some damn good basketball. Like an excellent point of attack defense out of Alex Crusoe and Javon Carter. And, uh, you know, Kobe White's playing extremely well. DeMar DeRozan's starting to get it going. And it's like the, 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 the Bulls are just good right now. So you're, you are playing bad team night after night after night for like two weeks. And then suddenly a really good team comes to town. You're accustomed to a certain level of intensity, a certain level of focus, a certain level of overall effort, Right. And then this good team comes to town, and sometimes there can be an adjustment period there. And so to bounce back from what was not a predictable loss to Chicago, but an an understandable loss to Chicago with a big win over the team that uh, I think has been playing the best basketball in the Western Conference in Minnesota, good win for the Sixers. Uh, On the Wolves' front, really hard to beat the Sixers in Philly when Embiid's getting that type of whistle. When he's got his mid-range jumper going, like I said, 11 for 14 from the mid-range. It just made it really, really difficult to guard them, right? Overall, though, the Wolves are playing really good basketball, and I love the formula they're building. Yes, they struggled with Embiid, but they've been shutting teams' water off, particularly perimeter stars around the league. I was watching Wolves heat the other day, and Anthony Edwards and Jaden McDaniels just like completely locked up Jimmy Butler down the stretch of that game, and Rudy Gobert had Bam in jail forcing him into these really tough pull-up jump shots. There was this play where Bam finally gets like super physically aggressive because he's sick of Rudy Gobert and like rips through to the left and like bumps him with that left shoulder and shoves Gobert off and tries to step through and get into the lane. Gobert recovered and swatted his ass into like a fast break opportunity for Anthony Edwards to go up and dunk with two hands. They are really good at, at, at pushing in transition selectively, not as much as I'd like. I'd like to see them push a little bit more because they're a mediocre half-court offense, but they have been the fourth best team in the league this year at converting transition possessions into points, according to Cleaning the Glass, at 1.33 points per transition possession. As of right now, they're the only team in the league holding teams below 110 points per 100 possessions. They're at 107.5. My only concern right now with the Wolves, really, is their half-court offense, where they're 16th. And as I've said throughout the season, their ceiling will entirely come down to Anthony Edwards' half-court shot creation, in my opinion. He's just going to have to be a guy that can win rock fights by generating quality shots. And for whatever it's worth, he's been pretty good at that in the previous two postseasons. All right, I wanted to talk about the New York Knicks for a little bit, and then we're going to talk about the Lakers. So, the Knicks blew out the Nets in Brooklyn last night, and then two days after uh, th- that, uh, two days earlier, I should say, they went into LA and beat the Lakers too. They took a couple of tough losses earlier this month on the road in Milwaukee and Boston. Those are really tough games to win, and those are the two best teams in the conference, right? But outside of those two games, so in the nineteen games outside of their last, uh, in their last twenty-one, outside of the two games that they played against Boston and Milwaukee, they are fourteen and five. And they are fourth in offense overall 
since November 4th. That's a significant chunk of time. That's the majority of the season to this point. In that span, both Randall and Brunson are averaging 25 points per game. Jalen Brunson, 25, 4, and 6 on 62% true shooting, and Julius Randle in 25-9-5 on 60% true shooting. Now, the defense has fallen apart since Mitchell Robinson got hurt, and we found out last night he's going to be out for the season. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But the Knicks are giving up 120 points per 100 possessions over their last six games. Big part there is the lack of rim protection. Again, Isaiah Hartenstein is a really good player who fits really well with this unit. Both Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson have a unique ability to engage help defenders. And like Randle, just by bullying fours and drawing the rim protector in, Jalen Brunson pulling the rim protector out in his drop coverage when he needs to contest uh, Brunson's floaters and mid-range jump shots and stuff. And every time they do that, it just ends up with Hartenstein either with a smaller player pinned on him underneath the basket or just by himself. And he had another five offensive rebounds last night. He's just killing teams on the glass. Hartenstein's great. But... Obviously, when you have some small perimeter personnel outside of Julius Randle and you don't have rim protection, it's just hard to guard. And so that's something that we've been seeing. Now, obviously, like I talked about last week, the Cleveland Cavaliers are one of the teams that could potentially be looking to make some decision. Now, they've been playing some decent basketball as of late. But I, as I've been talking about, Donovan Mitchell, it very well could be, comes available as a, a, as a trade target this year. And that was one of the guys that the Knicks were originally after. And I wouldn't be surprised if they looked to go that route again. And so we have two Knicks uh, fans on my team here at Hoops Tonight. Shout out to Paul Farrington and Josh Rodriguez. Uh, They are both instrumental to the day-to-day stuff with this show. And they're both Knicks fans. And I was asking them about whether or not they would want Donovan Mitchell. And it was split down the middle. One of the guys wanted him, one of the other guys not so much. And I I find this to be an interesting uh, example of team building that I wanted to talk to. So I talk about. So one of the things that we've talked about, uh, or I should say one of the things that Knicks fans have been talking a lot about is, man, like they just don't have any shot creation beyond Jalen Brunson. And it just turns into that one man show and things fall apart. And I understand that when you look at what happened last year in the postseason, which was Jalen Brunson was incredible. And damn near got you to the conference finals. Literally, you had a chance to win game six in Miami. It was this close. Where you would have gone home and had a good opportunity to win that series, right? But Julius Randle was terrible. And because he was terrible, they had no second option. And the Knicks lost. But I'm a firm believer that Julius Randle is actually the kind of player who should do well in the playoffs. The problem is he's very much a rhythm player. And he was hurt last year. He messed up his ankle right before the postseason. And like, again, when I say rhythm player, there are a lot of guys out there. You ever see that guy? I have a friend like this, a guy, uh, um, uh, this, this guy like could go 12 years without touching a basketball and then I could put him in a gym and he'd shoot the ball well. And like legitimately, he never plays. And when he does go play for whatever reason, or if we, him and I go shooting around or something, he just still has his touch and stuff because he played a lot when he was younger. He just has very natural rhythm. Kevin Durant's a guy like this. Like Kevin Durant could go without touching a basketball or, or without playing in an NBA game for two months and then step on the floor and more or less look like the KD that we know, right? Rhythm players 
Like they kind of have to get their stuff going, right? Like I very much am not. I very much am a rhythm player. Like that's why I'm super hyper diligent on my my shooting workouts every day. Because if I go four days without doing my shooting workouts, my shot and my handle will fall apart. Like I, I am very much a rhythm player. I have to be super diligent about my work in order to be a good basketball player. And I think Julius Randle kind of falls into that category. Like he just he needs to be playing, you know. 20 games in a row or so for him to kind of get into his groove and be the idealized version of himself, which is what he's doing right now. He's been healthy and he's been playing really well as a result. But like, I don't necessarily think that's the issue. They were literally, you get anything out of Randall last year, you're in the conference finals. And like, obviously, you know, are they, are, is this Knicks team capable of reaching the Boston Milwaukee level? Probably not unless they make a trade, right? But I'm just not necessarily sure Donovan Mitchell is the guy that I'd go after. First of all, I think he's just kind of redundant. I think he's the same type of player as Jalen Brunson. He's a pick-and-roll scorer who can pass, but is more of like a heliocentric pick-and-roll scorer, right? As I've talked about a lot on this show, I look at like this ideal like archetype of, of a basketball team, right? You got to have a skill guard, point-of-attack guard, tall, lanky wing, strong power wing, athletic center that can switch. We were talking about Minnesota earlier. Minnesota fits that mold literally perfectly. It's like Mike Conley's your skill guard, answer athletic point of attack guard. Jade McDaniels is your tall, slender forward. Carl Towns is your big, strong forward. Rudy Gobert's your athletic center that can switch and drop, right? And I don't, why would you make the same mistake the Cavs made and put another two small guards together that are redundant, right? I like the idea of having Jalen Brunson be the skill guard next to a point-of-attack elite uh, a guard, uh, 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 like off-ball guard. To me, that's where R.J. Barrett should be. What they need is they need a really good three, right? Julius Randle is your power forward that can attack matchups. And then ideally, when you're healthy, it's Mitchell Robinson. And Mitchell Robinson being hurt might be one of the best things that can happen to this team because it might stop them from doing something stupid like going after Donovan Mitchell. In my opinion, you patiently wait to see who you can put at that three. Because if I have Brunson Barrett with Randall Robinson in a really good three that is an elite shooter and that can guard multiple positions on the perimeter, now we're talking about a team that, that actually has a chance to go beat a team like Boston or Milwaukee in the playoffs. And so that, that I think like, you know, uh, Donovan Mitchell is going to be a guy that can help some teams. I just am not sure that New York is the team that he can specifically help. Uh, I've seen, you know, a lot of people talking about them waiting on Embiid potentially. That's another one that I would be, I would think is smart. Like if you could upgrade Mitchell Robinson into Joel Embiid, you can get away with a lesser player at the three, maybe a veteran minimum type of guy, right? Uh, but it's those two positions, the five and the three that I'd be looking to upgrade, not the two. Uh, it's certainly not with a guy who more or less is a one, which is what you already have in Jalen Brunson. And as you guys know, I, I think, I think Jalen Brunson is just better than Donovan Mitchell. I basically said that last year. I was like, I was, that's why I picked the, the Knicks to beat the Cavs. I was like, I think Brunson's going to outplay Mitchell. And, and he did. Uh, so I, I just don't think that's the route they need to go. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue while you prep your meats. That grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, 
The cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, let's talk Lakers for a few minutes and then we'll get out of here. So what is wrong with the Lakers? They are one in four in their five games since the in-season tournament win. And they've looked bad, like really bad. And so the question is, why have they looked bad? And I want to look at it from two fronts. There's a big picture element, and then there's some individual players that I want to hit on. In the big picture, this team, as I've talked about so much, their weapon is their defense. They're an elite defense. In my opinion, when they are engaged, they are the best defense in the NBA. Anchored by Anthony Davis, when he's engaged, best defensive player in the world, in my opinion, comfortably. LeBron James, when he's engaged, very, very good low man help defender because he just has a ton of IQ and the athleticism to make plays, right? When they have their wings slotted properly, Cam Reddish, when he's playing, like, and we're going to talk about Reddish here in a minute because he hasn't been playing well. Reddish at the point of attack, good weapon. Torian Prince as a secondary point of attack defender, good option, right? And then, you know, Austin Reeves typically is your one there. Austin just kind of does his job, right? I think they're the best defense in the league when they're engaged. Minnesota gives them a run for their money, but I just don't think Rudy Gobert is as good as Anthony Davis. Uh, but that team who won with defense, the same team that stopped the Pacers after the Bucks and Celtics could not, that team is giving up 120 points per 100 possessions in the five games since the in-season tournament. That's bad. They're not a bad defense, and they are playing bad defense. So that's a big part of it. Now, the question is why? Why are they playing bad defense? Really, it just comes down to the schedule. Um, you got to think of it like this. By the end of December, the Lakers will have played 12 of their last 19 games on the road. And in the middle of that was a stretch where they had to go to Vegas and play playoff games, basically, for a week. Played three playoff games. One at home and two in Vegas. And so I think, honestly, they're just a little worn down. I think some of it's a letdown, too. Like, think of it like this. Like, what, what is the in-season tournament win? Is it a trophy like the Larry O'Brien? No. But what it is, is a strong indicator that in big, meaningful basketball games, the Lakers are really damn good at that because of their physical nature and their defense and their ability to win rock fights in the level LeBron's playing at right now. 
or at least you, before the before this stretch after the tournament. And when you combine that with like everything we know about the Lakers last year in the postseason, that in-season tournament win was like a legitimization of them as a bona fide championship contender. The problem is, is you have to turn around and play Dallas a couple nights later, right? And like that's where things can kind of go off the rails. Is it becomes from a motivational standpoint when you just kind of legitimized yourself, and now you got to go play these low, low intensity, low importance games. They let their foot off the gas in a lot of ways, and then you combine that with tough schedule, right? Quality opponents, a lot of them on the road, like. Guys, the Chicago Bulls are, are playing really well lately. I want to say they're like 7-3 and three in their last 10 games. They just went in and beat the Sixers the other night. And like, they got to go on the road to Minnesota tonight. They're going to lose. LeBron's out. Anthony Davis should rest tonight. I hope he does. They're going to lose that game. Then on Saturday, they got to go to Oklahoma City. There's a decent chance they lose that game too. But then they'll come home in January. Uh, it gets tough at the end of December too. They're home for the Celtics and then they have two more road games. But in January, things will slow down. Hopefully they can recapture that. But again, we got to look at this, the Lakers in the big picture. I think they've been one of the best, uh, one of the worst, I should say, effort and energy teams in the league this year. If you take out the seven in-season tournament games, so the four pool play games, three single elimination games, basically all seven of those were really good start-to-finish Laker performances. Outside of that, because I think this team's won 15 games, their other eight wins, the vast majority of those have been uneven efforts where they've come out slow, BS their way through two and a half quarters, and then suddenly engage themselves and come back and win late. That was literally like, that's how they beat the Suns the first time. That's how they beat the Clippers the first time. That's how they beat the Magic the first time. Like, that's what they do. That, that's what they do. So, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not shocked anymore when I look at the scoreboard and they're down by 13 points in the first half against the Bulls. It's been somewhat their identity, you know? When a team that has to win through hard work because their best talent is their defensive potential, when that team doesn't play hard, they will get crushed. Those are the big picture elements. Now, there's some individual players because what ends up happening in a lot of these cases when a team is struggling it usually involves a bunch of specific players struggling. Now, on the offensive end, their core three are playing great. Anthony Davis, 32 points per game on 61, or 31 points per game on 61% in the last five games. LeBron, 27, 9, and 11 on 48%. Austin Reeves, 20 points and six assists on 51% from the field, 46% from three, 92% from the line. So they're getting scoring from their core guys. And Anthony Davis has more or less been the great defensive player that we've come to expect, although he's clearly been laboring a little bit with his ankle injury, right? But everyone else is struggling. And even among those core guys, LeBron completely let go of the defensive rope since the in-season tournament. Dominant low man against the Pacers, dominant low man against the Pelicans could give a shit the last week and a half. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's a fundamental part of defense we talk about, the low man, right? Uh, but there's a bunch of individual players that are struggling, right? Cam Reddish. Early in the season when he was playing well, it was dedicated effort at the, at the point of attack with focus on the game plan, with super selective offense. He was just taking wide open corner threes, and that was about it. Cam Reddish has really struggled in the last five games. He's uh, way loose on defense compared to where he was earlier. A lot of gambling, a lot of... Like, like stunting and getting out of position, really, really struggle with Jalen Brunson the other night. Cam's not playing very good on defense. Then on offense, he's gone back to a lot of what he did in the past, which is like 
taking early clock pull-up threes in transition above the break and driving into traffic and trying to do too much. Just in general, a quick trigger. And so now Cam Reddish has gone from a impactful 3 and D guy or D and 3 guy to something below that, right? Torian Prince has been shooting the ball better, but he's struggling on the defensive end of the floor and he's not doing anything to help on the glass. D'Angelo Russell is like completely checked out mentally, 34% from the field, 22% from three since the in-season tournament ended. And he's just floating through games on the defensive end of the floor. Jared Vanderbilt looks like he's still hurt. He's not moving well. And then again, and this is this this is a, an important part of this is the rotation piece, but Rui doesn't look like he fits in right now. Now, one of the things I want to say is Jared Vanderbilt and Rui Hachimura, they're combining in the last five games to play 38 minutes per game. Torian Prince by himself is playing 36 minutes per game. And I think a big, like, a, a Torian Prince is a guy that used to come off the bench and play in a limited role. And Darvin Ham has leaned into him as a high-minute starter, which is like, of course, his point of attack defense is going to struggle. Of course, he's going to struggle on the defensive glass. Of course, he's going to have games like he did against the Knicks where he goes three for 13 from three. He's not accustomed to this workload. Just go look at his minutes totals in the last three years before the Lakers. And now later in his career, when he's an older player and less athletic, Darvin Ham's leading on him in huge minutes. And it's just not necessary when you have other options there. That's the one big tactical thing that sticks out to me here. It's just a lot of Cam Reddish and Torian Prince. When you have other options like Jared Vanderbilt, like Max Christie, like Rui Hachimura that you can slot into those positions. And I do think that balancing that out more could help everybody. But all those guys are playing poorly. Again, like when you have three of your starters, Cam Reddish, Torian Prince, and D'Angelo Russell playing poorly, that's, that's going to lead to some bad basketball. And again, why are these guys playing poorly? I think they're a little worn down. A lot of road games, weird four, three, uh, you know, playoff style games mixed in. A little bit of a letdown after you win the damn thing. No chance to just go home and get into a routine. Look at their January schedule. Their January schedule is light. It lightens up. A lot of games at home. A lot of easier opponents. That's when I think you'll see the Lakers kind of click in and start to regain some ground in the regular season standings. But I will admit one thing. Like I. I was never down, no matter how poorly things got at the beginning of the season or in this last week and a half, I've never been down on the Lakers championship potential. If anything, I'm higher on it because LeBron looks better. And I think they're positioned for a trade. And we'll talk about the trade here in a minute, but like, I'm just not off of that boat. I was wrong about one thing, though. I said in the offseason that I thought the Lakers would win 50 games and just in general win a lot of regular season games because they just have a lot of talent and they'll just be able to get through the regular season riding that talent night in and night out. And I thought they'd be able to weather injuries to LeBron and Anthony Davis, which haven't happened yet, really. I was wrong about that in the sense that they have not been a consistently engaged team. And like, just go look at the NBA standings. Look through and look at how many teams are good. There's like 19 good teams. And then there's like 10 or 11 bad teams. And so as a result of that, and the night in, night out nature of the NBA, if you don't bring solid effort and energy and focus, you get your butt kicked. It's just how it goes. And, and so honestly, like, 
I, I, I view this as like a 45-win team now. A team that just kind of hovers around 500 and then at the end of the season will end up, you know, five, six, seven games above 500. And that's just simply from the standpoint of effort. This is a team that their low man, LeBron James, barely tries on defense, you know, uh, uh, in any uh, game unless it has some sort of degree of importance. And which, by the way, doesn't matter for the postseason. LeBron is consistently a guy that can make plays on that end when he gets there. But in the context of the regular season, it's an issue. And they're just not, they just have too many guys playing poorly right now. Last piece. I said before the season that I expected Rui Hachimura and D'Angelo Russell to get traded, but that D'Angelo Russell in particular was the safest bet in the NBA to get traded. And I said specifically because those are two of your top five players. The top five players in the Lakers are LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Austin Reeves, Rui Hachimura, D'Angelo Russell. Those are your top five guys. Except for. LeBron and Rui play the same position. D'Lo and Austin more or less play the same position, skill guard, right? And as we've talked about, if you go skill guard, skill guard, your defense falls apart. It has to be skill guard, point of attack defender that can shoot the ball, right? That, that, that's what your backcourt has to be. And what you're seeing right now is D'Angelo Russell's playing really poorly and starting to kind of hate his role on this team in a lot of ways, which is... You're the guy who starts the game, but we don't want you running the offense, and Austin's going to come in and take the reins from you and end up closing the game anyway. Not D'Angelo Russell's fault, not Darvin Ham's fault. That is a roster imbalance. That has been abundantly clear since the Nuggets series last year, right? And then Rui Hachimura, you know, like I don't think it's a coincidence that in that Spurs game LeBron didn't play last week, he looked good. Because he does the same stuff LeBron does. He is the same, lesser, he's a lesser version of the same player. A big matchup attacking forward who needs to play as a low man defensively. And so, when you have both of them together, and one of them's playing 36 minutes, there's just not a ton of opportunity for Rui Hachimura. And, like, last year in the postseason when he was great, they were playing him a lot at the three next to LeBron and AD, and he was playing with good players and getting a lot of catch-and-shoot opportunities, which he was making. Now he's pretty consistently playing in bench groups without their best players. They're tossing him the ball in the block and asking him to initiate offense, which is not his strength, and then his defense is suffering as a result of that. You know, it's funny because like, I'm a huge Rui fan. I think he's a good playoff player too. But there's a redundancy here. And that's where it becomes a problem. I don't know necessarily that Rui will get moved. That will basically depend on the target. But D'Angelo Russell will almost certainly get moved because of that imbalance. And then we look at the two inside guys. If we agree that the big picture version of this team is Austin is your skill guard, AD is the, uh, the primary rim protector, LeBron is the low man, it's the two and the three that will round out that lineup and that five, whatever that five ends up being, will determine the fate of this team. Cam Reddish, it was a cool story when he played really well for a couple of weeks. He will have other stretches this season where he plays really well for a couple of weeks and then he'll have other stretches like the last couple of weeks where he's loose and undisciplined in his impact craters. That's going to be the experience of riding a young, flawed player at the two. Torian Prince, very good bench wing. And when he's coming off the bench for you and playing 20-something minutes a night, he's going to be a really useful player for you. Good catch-and-shoot player, decent point-of-attack defender against lower-level perimeter talent. But when you slot him as a starter 
and he's guarding a lot of the higher level perimeter talent, you can run into some issues there. And so I keep pointing to the same situation. You have to find a way to turn your two players that are redundancies that you can't play in Rui and D'Lo into upgrades at the two and three between Austin, LeBron, and AD. And again, it depends on the player. I wouldn't do it for anybody. But, you know, if you can if you can call the Bulls and, and somehow get, you know, Caruso for D'Lo in a first and, and other salary filler, you got to do that. If you can call the the Brooklyn Nets and be like, hey, Rui Hachimura, you guys don't really have a big forward. You guys have a bunch of skinny forwards. You have Dorian Finney-Smith and Mikael Bridges and Cam Johnson. They're all more or less skinny forwards. You don't really have a big forward that can attack smaller players in the post. Why don't we try a swap there? You know, Then, then you can run Dorian Finney-Smith and Alex Caruso at the 2-3. Now you're talking about a lineup that can win the championship. But right now, that's the, that's why I keep them at the bottom of that tier. Like they, the the regular season stuff, mostly effort, mostly effort focus. This is an older team in terms of their stars. That's going to be something that's going to lead to problems there. But when it comes to the postseason, it's the weakness at the two and three that concerns me the most. Uh, but do, do keep an eye on. Uh, the, the, I expect the Lakers to struggle through the end of the year, and I wouldn't be surprised if we get to January and they're below 500. And then I expect them to win a bunch of games in January because their schedule lightens up at their and they're at home at home for the most part. So I think by the time we get to the deadline, they'll be, you know, somewhere three, four, five games above 500. And if they nail those traits, they can go on a little run post deadline, end up closer to 50 wins and have a better chance. But my guess. They'll, uh, I have no idea what's going to happen at the deadline, but at this point, I think the safer bet is for them to be a middle of the pack Western conference team who finishes with 40 something wins and just adjust your expectations. Laker fans adjust your expectations. This is not a team that, that is interested in overly engaging themselves over the course of the regular season. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. We have one more show tomorrow. We're going to do some instant reactions to some games and our MVP check-in in a mailbag. So keep dropping mailbag questions. I will see you guys then. wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere like at your pregame barbecue while you prep your meats that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch garage and the car inside and without the right home and auto insurance coverage the cost to repair this could eat up your savings so bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this bundled savings variant are not available in every state coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions it's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. 
Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddy? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.